Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Well, we're here in Hebrews chapter number 13, and I want you to look at verse 15 this morning to serve as our underwriting text. In verse number 15, uh, the scripture records, by him, it's a reference up to verse number 8, speaking of Jesus Christ, that eternal high priest, by him therefore, let us, if you write in your Bibles, you circle that U.S., that us, that's a reference to all believers. Let us offer the sacrifices, the sacrifice of praise to God continually. If you write, you can also circle the word continually. It means without ceasing. That is, what is the sacrifice that we should offer continually, that praise to God? That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. How appropriate just a moment ago, we sang, blessed be the name, blessed be the name. As you and I consider the name of Jesus, there's so much by which we should be thankful for. The writer of Hebrews says, it's something that we should give thanks for continually. This week in particularly, we as a society, uh, will uh, observe Thanksgiving Day. We've entered into that time of season, of Thanksgiving season for our society. Uh, in this populace, it would seem uh, that we could use and should observe, and I'm speaking civilly, not, not uh, just as saints, but I'm talking socially as the country. You would think our country would do well to take a time to celebrate or consider Thanksgiving. Uh, but yet, that date seems sandwiched between uh, the pagan holiday of, uh, of Halloween and somewhere sandwiched uh, in between all of the upcoming activities that will bring about the conclusion of the year. The reality is, in our society, we move from one thing to another. Uh, I would note that <clears throat> it seems that just a couple of years ago, you had your prime day in July, and it was supposed to be the counterbalance to uh, Black Friday, something like that. And I noticed this year, may I, maybe I haven't paid attention to it in previous years, but they opened up a whole other one in October. And so in the middle of October, you get another prime day, and, and then, you know, you got the great candy sale, and then you got election, and then you kind of got the last three-day weekend of the year, as it were in one sense, with Veterans Day. That seems how it's sadly often portrayed. And then you've got Black Friday and Cyber Monday, and then you move into the holidays. And I'm speaking socially. Thanksgiving's really not on the cusp of the mind of even our society. Now, if you want a society to complain about something, then we can line up and complain with the best. But it takes more than just the sheer movement of mouth to really truly give thanks. And truly, there's so much that our country really should give thanks for, regardless of the political nature that is ongoing, regardless of the geopolitical conflict, there's much in our society, and I'm speaking as Americans, that we could give thanks for. I'm giving you a few. I think that we should consider that we have the freedom and ability to travel. I read an article this week that talked about this weekend really upcoming being one of the busiest travel days of this year and how they're preparing for it at various airports. You know what it costs to travel? Proverbs talks about the fool spending money that his money would leave him like one that traveleth. It's expensive to travel. Yet you and I 
to a large part, except for preparations we might make, we take for granted the freedom we have to move around the country. To just go from place to place. We didn't have to, you know, I think about the times I've packed up and driven down to my parents 600 miles. There's other places and, and other societies that I would have had to cross international borders with. Now, I might pass a cultural border, if you will, but you do that going to Camp Hill from here, you know. <laughs> but there's a freedom to travel. Many of you have had the opportunity to travel out west. You didn't ask anybody's permission, did you? You planned, you saved, then you refinanced your house so you could afford the gasoline, <laughs> and you just went. You know, the world over doesn't have that kind of freedom. That's something I can be thankful for, is it not? I know it's something we take for granted. Many in this room, we grew up. And think about that to that detail, but that's something that we should be thankful to have. I think about relative peace. You know, our country is at relative peace as it pertains to conflict. I'm not talking about soteriological peace. It's hit my mind, and I'm not trying to be political, but do you, do you realize that many Thanksgivings before, we have massive numbers of deployments of soldiers, not just in outposts around the world, but in active places like Afghanistan. Yeah, I can be thankful that as a whole right now, with except from some places, U.S. military is somewhat at peace. Certainly on guard, but it's not like it was 10 years ago. I can be thankful for that. I think of our society. Read a report this week, don't laugh. They said hey, inflation's finally cooled. I told you, don't laugh. <laughs> but you know, I can be thankful that though inflation occurred, and I don't think there's anyone that hasn't felt it at one point or another, and I know there's many thoughts on that. The fact is, we have freedom to purchase. Some of you in this room may have grown up in a time when there were ration cards. But most of us only know that as a time in history. Many of us planning our Thanksgiving meal, I mean... I don't want to tell you that tomorrow I'm going to get my turkey because I don't want you to get the last ones. There's plenty of turkeys in the freezer bins, right? And some of you are like, well, I wouldn't eat that. I'm going to go kill my own turkey. Well, there's yet just another thing to be thankful that you live in a place where turkeys exist. I think about employment being steady. A preacher, you know what they said, the economic forecast for the United States, I know. But you look out about the whole of the country, anybody that lived through the 2008 financial setback knew a lot of people that lost jobs. I remember back in 2008, I was filling up my tank at the Turkey Hill there in High Spire, and a lady pulled in right across from me. I'd worked with her for three years. Her name's Lisa, and I said, Lisa, I said, uh, how are you making out? She goes, I still can't find anything. She's been out of employment for a year. You know, that's something that happened in history. Oh, there may have been people that's lost a job or in between jobs, but I'm talking as in a whole, employment's fairly steady. And I know you look at all those, those are the 
fall upon the good and the just, correct? That's not just to Christians. But if I had nothing wherewith, and I'm speaking societal for a moment, America would do well to take a pause and to consider all that she has to be thankful for. But for believers, even if none of that was true, I still have a responsibility to continually give thanks to God and to His name. I can think of numerous reasons why I as a believer ought to be thankful. Let me give to you a list. And I, these are, this is not an exhaustive list time won't allow, but hopefully it stirs within your heart and mind. Let me give you just a few things. He's saying, blessed be the name. He's talking about Jesus, that great high priest that was, that was uh, uh, carried outside the camp. He bore our reproach. He sanctified us, verse number 12, with His blood. Think of the soteriological implications, the doctrine of salvation. Think of the implications. I have forgiveness of sins. If I had nothing else to be thankful for, could I not, should I not be thankful that Jesus Christ bore my sins to the cross of Calvary? That He removed them from me as far as the east is from the west? Could I not bow the knee in a moment and say, Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. I realize there's a lot of things we can squabble about. There's a lot of disagreements we can have. But all to have the united voice of God's people always giving thanks continually for the salvation He has provided. That salvation's allowed me to have peace. Romans 5 talks about I have peace with God. Of course, because the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, has cleansed me from all sin. I can rejoice and give thanks for that. I think of this, I can give thanks for the home I have in heaven. Sometimes a home on this side gets a little frustrating. I don't know about yours. I don't believe in spontaneous regeneration or spontaneous generation for that matter, you know. But I do believe in spontaneous damages. You ever notice when something breaks at you? You ever notice with appliances, and by the way, I'm having no problems with my appliances, and I'm not going to knock on wood. Because I had that last year. I had the appliance issue. But you ever notice when one appliance goes bad, what happens? It's like they all had a conference together and selected the order in which they broke. Sometimes the home on this side isn't maybe our dream home. Maybe it needs repairs. Maybe it's just the cottage here below. But shouldn't we as believers give thanks always for the home we have in heaven? You know, a lot of, a lot of believers, well, for that matter, a lot of people this week are going to be around family. And the old adage, I'm not talking about religion and politics, lest you offend your family members. Well, I won't say anything about that. Outside to say in a lot of homes there's great conflict. Maybe between both or one of those issues. So sometimes there are people that you just don't want to have at home, family members you just don't want to be around perhaps. Well, I thank God about this home in heaven. I want to be there and I'm wanted there. The Lord promised, let not your heart be troubled. If I go away, I'll come again and I'll receive you in myself that where I am there you may be also. I can thank God 
that we have and know the faithful God. Verse number 8, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I thank God I have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, that he'll be with me always, even unto the end of the world. Why, even if I'm cast into a fiery furnace, I will not need to see the image of a fourth man in the fire, for I'll have that internal presence of the Almighty God with me until my body and soul are separated and at that moment, my soul will immediately and forever be in the presence of the Almighty God. It is impossible to separate the child of God from the presence of God in his life. It's an impossibility, not an improbability. He will be with me always. That's something I give thanks for. I give thanks that I have a sure word of prophecy. Isaiah said of it this wise, and it was so good, the Holy Spirit of God gave it to Peter to write too. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Well, I'm thankful sometimes that the grass fadeth. I'm glad that most won't have to mow grass in January. And in this climate, let me go on record, probably say that you'll never mow grass in January. That's a dig at man-made global warming, but anyway... But I can be thankful that the Word of God never fails. I can be thankful of the blessings that God has provided by His hand to me. You know, sometimes we often focus on the blessings we wish we had. But take for a moment and focus your mind on the blessings that God has given you. You say, preacher, there's things that I really, really want. And and they're not bad things. I'm not talking anything like that. Read through the narratives of scriptures. Go all the way back to Abraham and Lot. Abraham made a heartfelt mental understanding to obey God. And it cost him. Lot took the fair plains. But Abraham was thankful for the provision of God. You're not the first person that wished you had a certain blessing that God for various reasons, may not have given to you. But you can thank God for the blessings you have. If nothing else has grabbed the focus of our mind, another reason we can be thankful is because God has overwhelmingly decreed that we are to be so. If I didn't have any good reason at all to be thankful because I'm a citizen of this fair country, if I didn't have any other reason to be thankful because of the indwelling of the Spirit of God and knowing that I am a son of God and the blood of Jesus has cleansed me from all sins, then I have the responsibility of being thankful because God, my Heavenly Father, told me to do so. I never liked that as a child when your parent would tell you to do something and you asked the 25th letter of the alphabet, why, why, why? And they said, because I told you so. But that's exactly that point I'm giving you. If I had no other reason, Lord, why do I have to be thankful? The divine resounding answer from heaven would be, because I told you to. Thankfulness is a distinguishing mark between the believer and the unbeliever. Oh, the unbeliever can be appreciative, but the unbeliever really cannot articulate divine thanksgiving. Divine thanksgiving comes from the heart of a child of God and knows exactly to which that, how did the writer put it here? 
the sacrifice of the lips. It knows to whose ears it goes. Let me read you some scriptures. You won't have time to turn to these, but you'd write them down. I think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Ephesians 5, 20. Giving thanks always for all things unto the Father, unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that phrase, giving thanks always for all things. Even the troubles of life. All things. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15. Let the peace of God rule in your heart to which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. James 1 and 17, Every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. The supplication has that idea to ask. I'm to ask with thanks. We often get that backwards. We thanks once we, give, once we get the answer. God said, ask with thanks. I'm to be thankful for the sovereign will of God, even if His will is not what I would have chosen. I think about the Psalms. Psalm 107 and 1, O give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. Psalm 106 and 1, actually, Psalm 105, 1, 106, 1, and 107, 1. It's a trinity of thanksgiving. Psalm 105, O give thanks unto the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people. Psalm 106, 1, praise ye the Lord, O give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, His mercy endureth forever. How about Psalm 100 and verse 4? Enter into His gates with thanksgiving, and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him, and bless His name. Oh, we could go on. Psalm 118 and 1 said, O give thanks unto the Lord for He is good because His mercy endureth forever. And I've left several verses in here for time's sake. I'm simply showing you the singular fact that if I can't be thankful for where God has sovereignly placed me, I'm an American, and of all the freedoms and experiences I get, you say, preacher, what about people in other countries? Well, I'm sure there's a level of freedom and experience, but I am not qualified to really speak of that. I can only tell you what I've got here. By the way, if I was not born of American, God would require the same thing of me there. And if I was sovereignly placed and born in another country, biblically I'd still be required to give thanks in that state, and I'd have to fight the temptation to wish I was somewhere else. I have the responsibility, I give thanks for what God has done. By reference of salvation, by reference of provision, by reference of faithfulness, etc. I have a responsibility of giving thanks because He told me to. I'm a disobedient child if I have not given thanks. But that brings an interesting thing is, why so often as Christians do we fail in this regard? Why is it that my heart so easily is drawn to the proclivities of complaint and criticism and caustic words rather than just simply giving a thanks 
In fact, that word thanks, the Greek word behind it is Eucharist. Now you might think of that as in Catholic type communion, but Eucharist, the idea is a compound word. Now, and I'm not telling you this just to fill your head with knowledge, but there's a beautiful principle here. The word Eucharist is a compound word in the Greek. And, and that charis, the last half, Eucharist, charis, on the end means grace. Hence, thanks, the Greek word Eucharist, Eucharist means saying grace. If you will, counting up the grace. That's why it's so easy, Thanksgiving. It's an action. When I was to speak of giving Thanksgiving or to giving of thanks, it has the idea of me enumerating, i.e. making a list, in my mind and heart. It's part and parcel the idea of biblical meditation. If I'm to meditate, I'm to give thanks. If I pray, I'm going to give thanks. God has expressly commanded it. Part of my prayer ought to be a heart that meditates and enumerates the, the reality of thanksgiving that I should live in. Yet too often in the lives of believers, we allow the events of life to dictate our thanksgivings. Especially when they do not progress in the way that we would want them to. As a result, sometimes we harbor these offenses that are against us and become sour, acrid, if you will. Uh, and that spirit develops that ultimately will war against our spiritual man. Now, I mentioned to you at the onset, you can go back through the scriptures and God, through inspiration, preserved aloud in scriptures, individuals who went through great hardship, sometimes saw delayed promises, sometimes uh, a delayed fulfillment of promises, sometimes uh, saw blessings that would not be theirs for many years, and sometimes suffered loss. Why did he put them in there? So that we feel bad for them? I think about Abraham. He waited all those years for a son of promise. The ones given to him. When the old boy gets older, what's Abraham supposed to do? What was he supposed to do? <laughs> what would be your thoughts walking up Mount Moriah with your son? Your only son. Your son of promise. Blessed be the name, blessed. Would that be your thought? I don't want you to tell on yourself. I don't want to tell on myself. It wouldn't be my thought. My dear son looked at me and said, Dad, I, I see we got to fire and I see we got to wood, but where's the old sacrifice at? But I said, the Lord shall provide. And Abraham could have gotten bitter over what God required of him. I think a few chapters later in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel, God provided in a huge way across the Red Sea. They're scarcely on the other side marching around and get thirsty, Exodus chapter 15. And they come upon a place that had bitter waters. They called the place, the name thereof, Marah. They're thirsty. They couldn't drink. So you know what they did? They did what every good Baptist does. Complain. That's what they did. And they complained at God. And they complained at the river. And they complained at Moses. And never once took a moment to think that what's a little bitter water with the God that just split the Red Sea? But friend, well, don't we do the same thing? 
Yes, we do. Well, some of us do, you know. I know the halos are shining, you know, in our hearts. We, we like to think better of ourselves. We don't want that. We don't like that part about us. But yes, we're prone to do that. They were complaining because momentarily there was a basic need that was unmet. You been there before? You got a basic need that's unmet? And we somehow want to look at God and somehow claim that He's just let us down. Did they forget they were walking around? That they had help? They had jingle in their pockets? They had wealth in their pockets. They were a bunch of slaves that didn't own anything, but when they leave, the Egyptians gave them wealth, and that's the very wealth that they would contribute later to, to Moses for the building and the maintenance of the tabernacle. Isn't that interesting? It weren't two years ago you were laboring to make bricks in the most cruel circumstances. You're being abused and beaten. God sent the self-proclaimed stutterer to deliver you. God spared you from the death angel of that tenth plague. God provided for you and he allowed an exodus and they paid you to leave. And when the administration pursued you, God defeated him and you were eyewitnesses of this. Now we've come in a little bit and the water's bitter. And oh, how they railed. You know, kind of like when our turkeys burnt. How upset we become. Keep reading through the narrative of what we know of history, of biblical history. I think of Ruth. Time of famine. They're in the center of where they're supposed to be. They're in land that God has given them. Land that they were to steward to give to their children and their children's children. Lemelech and Naomi. They married. Sweet on each other, you know. And God bless that union, gave them two sons. Malon and Chilion. Those boys grew up. And at some point, mom and daddy made a decision that here's not good enough. The economic forecast is too much. There's famine in the land. We're scraping by our basic needs. Our dreams, ambitions are not being met. But if we can get across the river to Moab, things would be hunky-dory. So they did. They didn't need God to split the Red Sea. I'm sorry, the Jordan River. They figured a way around it. They crossed over and they set up shop. Malon and Chilion marry. Naomi now welcomes two daughter-in-laws, Pora and Ruth. And therefore, wow, everything seems hunky-dory. Tragedy, judgment occurs. Lemelech, Melon, and Chilion all die. Naomi's left with nothing. Two daughter-in-laws, and she encourages them not to follow her. She's so miserable in her condition. But Ruth, who at that point seemed to have greater faith than Naomi, said, I'll go where you go. Come back across Jordan into the land. And from a distance, the people see old Naomi. And she's walking. Her gait's not nearly as spry as it used to be. There's no bounce in her step. The hairs have turned a feebler color than they were when she left. And there's no following or I should say she's trailing no husband and boys. 
but rather there's a stranger to Israel that's following her named Ruth. She enters into the gates of the city of Bethlehem, going back to the land that was given to her, her sons. Now knowing that the law, Levitical law, would cause it to be passed to a, someone else, she could live there. That provision had been made, but because there was no offspring of her sons, and there were no more sons to her, her husband, has no hope. Not only she had lost what was over there, she had lost what's over here too. And they said, is that Naomi? means pleasant one. Is that Naomi? And she said, call me not Naomi. And she hearkened back to that old Hebrew word that the children of Israel, her forefathers had used in the wilderness wanderings. Call me Mara. A very word in Hebrew. Bitter. It's interesting, Colossians chapter 3. I'm moving ahead a little bit here. Colossians chapter 3, you'll find this command in verse number 19. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter, acrid against them. Marvelous, isn't there? There's any number of events that can produce bitterness in the life of a believer. It can be false promises, I think of Jacob. He was promised one lady to wed and wound up wedding a different one and didn't know it and felt the old bait and switch was on and had to work another seven years for the one he loved. Bitterness could have set in. There's Abraham's waiting decades for God's fulfillment of the promise. I talk about one I consider often is Hannah. She was, it was a tormentor. You read that in 1 Samuel chapter 1. There's someone that tormented her of the fact that she was barren, that God had given no child. Her husband was rather dismissive of her. The priest thought she was drunk. She turned only to the faithful God. And God provided, was given her son named Samuel. And she followed through on the condition. When he was just weaned, she gave him up and over. Oh, she'd see him year to year. He wasn't coming home on weekends. This wasn't a weekend ministry only. For the balance of his life, particularly of those later elementary into teenage years, he'd see Mama once a year. That was a condition that Hannah promised to the Lord. And of course, as a young man, maybe even early 20s, he became the high priest of Israel and would minister before the Lord. Hannah didn't get to see a whole lot of things. On either side of that issue was enough for one person to justify their bitterness. The fact they didn't have what they wanted, the fact they were tormented about what they didn't have, or the fact they had something they wanted, waited for it, got it, and then had to turn it loose. We can think about Paul. False imprisonment, unrecognized service, bad help. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he talks about, in my body, I bear them. I'm persecuted, but not forsaken. There's any number of reasons or events that can produce bitterness. These are real burdens. They're real offenses that were occurring unto someone else. And that's really what bitterness is. Bitterness is the sin we commit against ourselves. Somebody might react to you because they're bitter. 
They might say a harsh word or a critical word to you because they're bitter. But ultimately, you don't force bitterness upon anyone. Bitterness is an active decision of the heart that we make and refusing to see the providential hand of God in our life. The sin of bitterness is self-imposed. He took all the events of life. And for a believer I speak of, we took all the events of life and we did a little reckoning. That's Romans 8, remember? I reckon that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be. We did a little reckoning. We looked at who God was, His providence, His deliverance, His salvation, His provision. Amen. And then we looked at the offenses of this life. And what produces bitterness is when I take the offenses of this life and in my mind I reckon them more important than the provision of God. Hence, bitterness is the natural enemy of thanksgiving. In order to have bitterness, it is a decision that you and you alone made in your heart against God. Now we might chalk it up and say, no, I didn't make that against God. But if we see His thankfulness and provision as being all self-sufficient, then we would reckon all the sufferings of this life as nothing in compared to His eternal weight and glory. Bitterness is the inverse. It causes us to look at the offenses. It causes us to look at the loss. It causes us to look at the frustration. It causes us to look at the failed expectation. It causes us to look at the, at the promises of God that have been delayed in our life. And say that's more important than giving thanks always in all things to the Father in heaven. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 we read, Let us offer the sacrifice and praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His names. Too often in the lives, in our lives, this is not even a goal in life. It's only a hope that one day we'll be thankful about some things. Now I want you to turn over to chapter 12 a moment. It's important just for a second to give you a brief narrative of Hebrews. The fact is Hebrews has in mind three different groups, two or three different groups that look at it. You've got one group that is convinced of the messianic eternal priesthood of the Almighty God. And they've adhered to Him. And they believe Him. you got another group of Hebrews that are on the fence about this matter. Could be convinced, might not. They're on the fence about things. Or they're on the fence about Him being exclusive enough and still stuck in an Old Testament confirmation of things. Another group you have is Hebrews who are resisting the person of Christ. That's why he starts out in chapter 1 and he gives the writer through inspiration such appealing reference that Jesus Christ is better than angels. You get to chapter 12, and really even chapter 11, the great hall of faith. The narrative really moves to these believers who have embraced the Lord Jesus as their Savior. But it wasn't easy because they paid a high cost to accept Jesus as their Savior. 
They're being persecuted by non-believers, but particularly by non-believing Jews. That's why in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith is the theme and essence. And to so many is laid out the narrative of what they waited for, and what they sought for. That's why you have the whole narrative about those prophets who the world was unworthy that were sawn asunder. The Holy Spirit of God moving upon this writer that I believe the Apostle Paul is. Pulling and drawing the attention of these believers to not forsake the commitment of their heart because of the sufferings of life. He moves to chapter 12 and verse 1. He said, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. Consider him that endured contradiction in verse 3. Consider him in verse 2 that endured the cross and despised the shame and is set down. And he pulls their narrative away just from the prophets. And he pulls their narrative away from the patriarchs. And he pulls the narrative away that those people, those divine saints that existed before Noah. And he says, look at faithful Jesus Christ, your Savior. Endured he not great adversity on life. He's your witness. And then he begins in the second part, that middler part of chapter 12. It says in verse 4, you've resisted unto blood striving. You have resisted. You have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. He said you haven't been killed for your beliefs yet. Some had. Stephen had. James, the brother of John, had. Acts chapter 12. Paul would be. Peter would be. But at this point, he said you're being persecuted and it's sore, but you're not dead yet. They've not put you on a pyre. They've not stoned you yet. He urges them to run the race like Christ did. And then in that middle of portion, he begins talking about the chastening hand of God. He wants them to see that the chastening hand of God is evidence of God's love. That it has its marvelous benefits. That God allows sometimes the struggles and trials of life to occur in the life of a believer. It educates them. It disciplines them. It trains them. It conforms them to the person of Christ. And it prepares them for service and to be a witness. And ultimately to be an example to other believers to a certain extent. In verse number 13, he admonishes them not to allow the circumstances of life to be victorious over them. He says, make straight paths for your feet. The word path has the idea of a well-worn road, a rut, if you will lest the lame be turned out of the way. Idea of injury occur. Set your mind to focus on the path that is before you, not all the circumstances that are raining upon you. But notice what he said in verse number 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, thereby many be defiled. He goes again a third time in verse 16, lest there be a fornicator, a profane person as Esau, for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. He warns them of what happens when they take their eyes off the Christ and allow the enemy of thanksgiving to pursue them. Let me give you these three, four things here. I don't have time to develop all this this morning, but maybe this will hit in your heart a little bit. 
Who's responsible for us not being bitter? Bitterness always projects it upon somebody else. They did something to me and I can't let it go. Do you realize if you're bitter this morning, it's fighting against Thanksgiving? It was your choice. This is my choice. Circle those words. There's a beautiful word picture here. Looking diligently. An adverb modifying the, the verb there. Looking diligently. You circle it, and I want you to write this in your margin. Ready? Write the word B-I-S-H-O-P. Bishop. Now, three words in the New Testament used to describe the office of the pastor, we would call it. Really, the word office in ministry is only used in reference to the pastor in the word bishop. It's the word episkopos. He's the overseer. Then you've got presbyteros. That's the word elder. And poimain is the word pastor. The pastor has the idea of feeding or preaching the flock. The bishop has the idea of oversight of the flock. That's the word used here. Looking diligently is the reference. How do you look diligently? You bishop your own soul. Pastor your heart. Warn yourself. Preach to yourself. That's the greatest tool you can ever do in your life is to preach the Word of God to yourself. Yes, it's so much easier to preach the Word of God to your spouse, to your children, to your neighbor, to your friend, to your Sunday school class, to the nursery workers. Get the mirror, look, in your look, in, look at your beautiful face in the morning and preach to yourself. Trouble comes your way, someone's offended you. Preach about forgiveness to yourself. Someone's mishandled you. Preach to yourself about how you've let down the calling of God in your life. That's what he's saying, looking diligently. Bishop yourself. That's, that's the means that God has provided for all of us in this matter. Someone's mistreated you in a sense. Bishop yourself. Start with the end of Romans chapter 12. That's a good place to deal. Avenge not yourselves, dearly beloved. Start with Ephesians chapter 4. Forgiving one another for Christ's sake. Marvelous words indeed. Bishop yourself. Why is it important to bishop yourselves? To consider, to think appropriately about the struggles of life? Because bitterness will do four dynamic things to you. Not just simply be the enemy of thanksgiving. Notice, by the way, when I think, because of what we're doing this evening, I think of verse 15, he says, looking diligently. That reminds me quite often of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let a man therefore examine himself. That doesn't happen once, twice, three times a year. That ought to be a daily, daily thing I do. Dear men, you're shaving, trimming, lining, whatever you might do to your face in the morning. Examine yourself. Don't examine yourself in the best light as we're prone to do. Examine yourself in the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. That's what he's speaking of here. Notice these four. Number one, this false view of troubles of life that prevent thanksgiving. And I say prevent, but really fight against thanksgiving. Number one, notice this. Lest any man fail of the grace of God. If you write in your Bible, you circle that word fail, you put this by it, to be late. That's what he's talking about. Now some would contend this has the idea that God is no longer going to save them anymore. They've lost their salvation. 
That's not the case. But you can follow the grace of God. When you think of the grace of the God, Karis, you think of the gifts of God. You might think of the opportunities that God has given you. Listen, there were opportunities in verse number 12. Circumstances are coming, difficulties are coming, persecution's coming. In verse number 12, they're admonished of a great opportunity. Lift up the, the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, strengthen them. In every trial life is an opportunity. You hone in on that bitterness. You'll miss opportunities to serve God. Right now is the greatest time in your life to ever serve God. It ain't in five years, it ain't in ten years, and it wasn't five years ago. Right now really is the only time you can serve God. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I sit right over there Thursday night. I can't get this off my heart. Sean, Brother Sean sat down beside me and he said, Do you know who R.B. Olet is? I said, Yeah, I don't know him personally. I've heard him preach on CDs and stuff. He pastored in Michigan for like a million years. Yeah, I know that. Not really. He's like 50 years or so. He said, You... You read the online post, and I said, no, I, I don't know. And he goes, here, read it. The post was on this preacher's account. He had retired from the ministry for about two, three years. And uh, he's preached all over the world. He took that church in Bridgeport, Michigan. I don't know if he's 20 years old when he took little country church kind of deal. And uh, that's all he's done all of his adult life. He went to the doctor. Had some troubles in his, in his throat. And uh, Thursday morning, I believe it was, he had his surgery. Cancer in his throat. They'd take his voice box. And his wife posted, we've determined not to focus on all the last things. The last time I'll ever hear his voice. The last time he'll ever speak. The last time he'll ever have water running down his head in a shower. I'm sorrowful over that. Some might say, well, can't they do something synthetic? It's not the same. He's a preacher. It's all he's ever done. His greatest elations and greatest comfort and greatest struggles have come as he's communicated the word of God. And now that's gone. And she and he began to enumerate all these first that it will be. You see, to get better over that, you'll lose an opportunity to minister. Sit by that sickly child, and you wonder why it's my child. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity God in His sovereign grace allowed you to have. And you can hoard up all that anger and bitterness at people and things and you'll miss the grand and glorious opportunity you have to proclaim Jesus Christ and to see other saints strengthened. Bitterness will cause you to fail in the grace of God. Notice the second thing there, if you will. Look at this last phrase. Next to last phrase. This root of bitterness springing up, it manifests itself in so many ways. But ultimately, bitterness, it'll trouble you. You circle that word trouble, harassed. Harassed. Vex. It will gnaw at you 
about everything. That's what bitterness will do. It'll trouble you. In fact, this word trouble is kind of used to the idea that it will harass you like an enemy. You know, I mentioned old Hannah was harassed and harangued. The Thessalonian believers in Thessalonians chapter 1, they were troubled and tried in tribulation. There was the idea that their adversary had wore a groove in them. That's what bitterness to do with you. Bitterness just won't steal a little bit. It'll steal everything. It won't just cause you to be thankless about a specific thing. It's a root illness, a root sin, and it will spread to every aspect of your life. You won't be able to enjoy any good thing that God gave you. You remember the narrative I gave you about the children of Israel coming across to the, uh, the, the, uh, the water supply there, Myra? They had shoes that had no holes in them, said God. In fact, they'd never wear out. They had a jingle in their pocket they'd never had before. They had to carry their money that they had never had before in. They had clothes that did not wear. They had bellies that were full. Yet what was their focus? Water, well, I don't know what God's thinking. The water down here, just plain bitter. Why don't they do so? You'd think if God could provide, you'd think he'd have provided a bottle of Aquafina. Now what about the gold in your pocket? What about the clothes on your back? What about the children behind you? You know, your firstborn child in particularly, he's still upright and walking around. Because Egypt done lost all theirs. And God provided and protected you. What about the bleeding of all those animals? I had to have sheep. They would be offering them for sacrifice. Above all that, I missed one of the greatest ones. What about the back that you can rear your shoulders back and lift your head high and you can suck in the fresh air as a free man? Who were former a bunch of slaves. What about the fact that you're not firing up a furnace trying to make bricks to build the emperor's new groove? It troubles you. So fixated were they on this small thing in comparison to the light of glory. It troubled. It took from them their song and their heart. Bitterness will trouble you. Notice the third thing. Many be there defiled. I mentioned a moment ago, what about all your little children? You know what the great, great, great damage that bitterness does? It's, uh, it's like the flu bug. You'll spread it. You'll love your wife, but you'll spread it to her. She loves her husband, she'll spread it to him. You'll spread it to your children. You'll spread it to your dog if there's a chance. You won't even mean to. You'll develop such a criticism about everything. Can't give thanks for anything. You'll spread it to your extended family members. You'll spread it to your church people. You'll spread it to your co-workers. That's never God's will. But that's the cost of bitterness in our life. Keep in mind, bitterness isn't a perceived, does not occur because of a perceived injury. It occurs because of a real injury. 
the children of Israel weren't around a, a body of water that they thought was bitter. The water really was. Naomi's not coming back saying, well, things were fine and I'm overplaying my hand. Things weren't fine. She was in a terrible time. There was real issues going on. It's only by God's grace that Naomi didn't spread her bitterness to dear old Ruth. That's what will happen. You'll defile, that's what the text says, many. By the way, that's exactly what happened to the children of Israel. So great was their bitterness, so ongoing, that it just naturally occurred in generation after generation. I mean, each generation making those decisions. Let me give you a fourth thing. Verse 16. Lest there be a fornicator or profane person. The word profane kind of has with it the idea of a threshold. You crossed over a line. It's an important thing to remember. When God points out one, Esau. Esau crossed a line. For if one morsel of meat sold his birthright, for you know how that afterwards, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sold it carefully with tears. Here's a man who had something happen to him, Esau. Remember what happened? His brother connived him. Of course, he was part of it, wasn't he? He sold it for a bowl of pottage. Years later, he would come back to get his blessing. And his dad said, I want you to go out. I love venison. Go get me a venison. Oh, Esau, my son that I loved. Rachel heard it, supplanting with her son, supplanter. Go kill the goat, make it, hurry up, get it in here. And old Jacob put the hide of that goat on his arms. So he smelled of the outdoors because he was not. And they fixed all this up and supplanted him so that Jacob blessed, or rather Israel, no, Isaac blessed Jacob. Fell of his arms, hairy like Esau's. He's a blind, Israel was. Smelled of him, he smelled like an outdoorsman. The meat, close enough to be venison. When Esau comes back, he says, Father, bless me. He said, well, I've already blessed you. Father, find another blessing. And Israel said to Esau, I have nothing wherewith to bless thee. Esau wept. Now here's the point. So great was his hatred and bitterness that he left all that had to do with the things of God. He crossed the line. He did not cease to be a son of Israel. But he did cease to be an example. He did cease to be a faithful follower. So too, bitterness can rule in our heart in such a sense. Listen, just because he got the birthright, did that mean he had to live like a devil? No. But that's where bitterness will drive you. It calls us to, fake, to fixate on such a loss that our life will resemble one 
that is brutish and profane. That's the cost of bitterness. If these Hebrews here in Hebrews chapter 12 were to continue with joy and patience and to give thanksgiving and praise to God continually, they were going to have to put all of these injuries and losses under and to the control of the Almighty God. They were going to have to dictate their steps in biblical truth. They were going to have to trust God with the things they could not control. Failure to do so will inhibit any thanksgiving in their life. What's inhibiting our thanksgiving? What is that thing we're seized upon? It may be real. None of this is pretend. None of this is symbolic. There were real injuries that occurred. Real loss that was sustained. But friend, God is greater. And the sufferings of this world are not to be considered greater than the promises that are to be found in Him. Bitterness is the enemy of Thanksgiving. Let's stand up. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.